This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon, good afternoon, and welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you, and if you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you do, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Well, we are continuing on with the resistance, and I'm excited to have in studio um, a friend uh, a former Senate colleague, someone who works on issues near and dear to my heart, judicial nominations, joining me in studio to talk about all the latest and greatest, particularly on the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court in studio, none other than Josh Orton. Josh, welcome. I'm happy to be here. So glad you're here. And if you want to follow and you should stay in touch with Josh, you can check him out on Twitter at Josh, J-O-S-H-O-R-T-O-N. Also joining us for the first time on the show, Joshua Matz. He's the publisher of the Take Care blog. He's a attorney, author of the book, Uncertain Justice, the Roberts Courts and the Constitution. Joining us for the first time on the Leslie Marshall Show, Joshua Matz. Josh, welcome welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. And it's so funny. I didn't plan on booking two Joshua's. And jo- uh, Josh, jo- Joshua. Josh Tuesday. <laughs> it's Josh Tuesday. Um, Joshua, if you want to follow him on Twitter, you can check him out at Joshua M A T Z eight. If you want to follow the conversation for Leslie and I, you can check out at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle with one L Jawando. So let's set the stage. Yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee met and voted along party lines. 11 to 9, sending Judge Neil Gorsuch, who is Donald Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, to the Senate floor for final consideration. The vote is expected to take place on Thursday, with a final vote expected to occur on Friday. For weeks, Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate Majority Leader, has threatened to go nuclear if the Democrats required a 60-vote threshold for Trump's nominee. Now, to put that in perspective, the last four Supreme Court justices at some point during their confirmation have all met the 60-vote threshold. And what has now happened is Democrats now have 43 no votes. So what's going to happen is we're going to have to see if McConnell actually pulls the nuclear trigger which many say, and I agree, will cause irreparable damage to one of our foremost U.S. political institutions, potentially making the Supreme Court, if it's even possible, more polarized and ideologically pure over time. So, Josh Orton, let's start with you, because I know you've spent a lot of time, as have I, in the Senate, 
Um, we are what they call Senate snobs, folks. Uh, we like our time in the upper chamber. But one of the reasons we like working in the Senate is because it is a small club. Uh, you have to work with other people um, to get anything done. And to me, I feel like we are moving down a road and it's like you see the crash coming, but we're still going in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. When I first started working for Harry Reid, his chief of staff told me that there were two rules in the Senate. One, you have to get to 60. Mm-hmm. And two, everything is a negotiation. Right. And, <laughs> you know, I, I think what's clear is that moderate Republicans are facing this terrible quandary where you see senators like John McCain and Susan Collins bemoan having to this nuclear option that Mitch McConnell is pledging he'll pull. And I think it's because the 60-vote the threshold is what makes any individual senator powerful. That's right. It's, it's what makes the, the body different than the House of Representatives. And on some level, what they're doing is they're going to be giving away some of their influence, some of their power, by moving something that as precious as a Supreme Court nomination um, to, fit to a 50-vote threshold. You know, it's interesting. I think McConnell's strategy from the beginning was to put this all on Democrats. Mm-hmm. He has this way of being the bull in the china shop, but then convincing <laughs> everybody that stuff was broken before right, he got there, right. right? Before you walked in, that was broke. Yeah, and so he, you know, he's been trying, he's been trying to say, well, it's up to Democrats not to force me to do this. Right. Right. It is right. their choice. Don't make me do it. Don't make me push the button when, in fact, it's absolutely his choice. Mm-hmm. We know two things, right? The Last year, Republicans refused to give Merrick Garland even a hearing. 293 days. That was, that was McConnell's strategy from the day that Justice Scalia passed through the election. And Within it was an a, hour. And it was a nakedly political mm-hmm. strategy. And it will be, and and now on Thursday, if the Senate is sort of blown up like this and Supreme Court nominations are moved to a, the lower threshold, it will be done with probably exclusively Republican votes led by Mitch McConnell. Moderate Republicans don't have to do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Democrats ca- can't force them. They can just change the nominee. That's right. So, Joshua, you are um, without question a Supreme Court watcher. You've clerked for one of the justices. Um, what is it like watching this experience um, and and understanding that at some level there has been this comedy and this uh, bipartisanship when you place someone on the Supreme Court, and that all well could change in a matter of days. I I think it's disturbing. It used to be the case that the political party that appointed a justice or that confirmed a justice didn't necessarily tell you a great deal about how they were likely to vote on the most important cases. And unfortunately, that has by and large changed. Uh, Judge Gorsuch is obviously an exceptionally conservative fellow. And it is pretty clear that were he, to, were he to join the court, he would join a group of fellow conservatives to vote in ways, uh, in many areas, likely consistent with that that the Republican Party would like to see realized. And just thinking about the court as an institution that is not electorally accountable but wields tremendous power, it's troubling to think that it would be so flagrantly politicized along the lines of you know, day-to-day partisan disputes. Uh, instead of by reference to the deeper principles of the Constitution. You know, I I find myself, you know, I sat there for the four days of the hearing and then even yesterday at the markup, um, and there were a number of members who were lamenting the change Senate. Um, But I think so much of that is reflective of our change politics. Um, I think 
also many people look at a more politicized and polarized Supreme Court. So you see kind of our fundamental institutions just changing around us um, and our response um, and Josh, I'll, I'll throw this to you. Our response seems um, every, with every threshold, we have to raise kind of the standard of how people respond. So like we're going from zero to 60 on blowing up the filibuster, whereas with Harry Reid, he went through almost 500 filibusters yeah. between 2007 and 2013 before they changed the rules on the lower court. Yeah, it's Judges. it's unprecedented. And I think that Joshua's point is 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 totally apt about how the Supreme Court, you know, at least from the Republican side, the nominating process for justices has become completely politicized. And that was on purpose. Right. 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 They were tired. Republicans were tired of nominating so-called conservative justices who then wouldn't stick to the script once they were confirmed to lifetime appointments. Mm -hmm. And so they built this infrastructure over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist Society, to basically raise hybrid uh, judges slash politicians. Judges in a can is what someone. Yeah, <laughs> and so and so it, it's it's ironic that throughout that testimony you saw Judge Gorsuch say so many times, "Well, my personal opinion has no bearing. Mm-hmm. That's not the job of a judge." He would not have been in that chair had it not been for his political beliefs. That's right. That's right. That was why he was chosen. That's why that when Trump outsourced this project to to Heritage and and Federalist, that's why he was at the top of the list, is Mm -hmm. for his political ideology and for his ability to to weave that political ideology into the judicial judicial branch. And for Democrats, I think it's, we've sort of seen this slow motion train wreck. Right. And it's been hard to respond to in part because it's always hard to respond to the sort of naked politicalization of a cherished institution. That's right. And so, you know, I think that the Trump inauguration of the Trump administration, I think, has given Democrats um, a new view that resistance in on all fronts is on the table. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's sort of seeing Gorsuch's nomination and sort of this fake confirmation process, I think has really opened Democrats' eyes to just how political this has become. Right. So, Joshua, when we come back from break, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your blog, the Take Care blog, why you felt like this was the moment, particularly with the backdrop of everything that's happening on Supreme Court nominations and uh, judicial fights, why this is the moment to launch a blog. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. 888-6-LESLIE. Franklin, this is none other than Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you. If you want to join the conversation, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. I am back on the horn with Josh Orton. He is a Democratic aide, longtime Senate staffer working on the Gorsuch nomination, and Joshua Matz, publisher of the Take Care blog. So Joshua, 
you know, we've talked a little bit about the backdrop of where we are. Um, and you decided at this time and all of the work that you've done to publish this blog. Tell us a little bit about why, particularly right now. With pleasure. The, the idea behind the website, which is at www.takecareblog.com, is that since Trump has been elected and inaugurated, we've been drinking from a fire hose trying to comprehend the sheer scope of the illegality flowing out of this administration. And there needed to be a place where some of the best and brightest, and my contributors include over 25 former Supreme Court clerks, where the best and brightest really try to keep track of this and offer useful and accessible analysis of what's going on under the Trump administration to help protect the rule of law. You know, and we, we have seen uh, through the Obama presidency where every time he sneezed, you know, 15 websites on the right, 100 websites, would swear he had just shredded the entire Constitution. We've seen shockingly little concern, I think, from the right about Trump's constitutional violations, you know, notwithstanding these supposed wonders of originalism and textualism. And so there need to be resources on the left to fight back and to help build legal ideas and keep track of what's happening. That's great. So we have a caller, Rick from Portland, Oregon. Rick, you're on with Michelle on the Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome. Hey, good, e- good day. You know, uh, I just want to say, Josh, that uh, this is not an issue of conservative over liberals. This is a matter of corporate interests and billionaires who are taking over our country. Uh there's no conservatism behind Gorsuch. He's a money interest guy. He's taken billions of not millions of dollars, and so is Mitch McConnell. These people have only one interest, and that is corporate interest. Rick, we don't I... care about the people. Yeah. It's, uh, no, don't you agree? I mean, I no, I so um, appreciate um, your call, and one of the reasons um, that there was so much concern during the hearing was particularly because Gorsuch does have this anti-worker background. And Josh, I don't know if you want to chime in on that, but I mean, that was apparent whether or not you're talking about the story of Alphonse Madden, um, often referred to as the frozen trucker, and this callous indifference from Gorsuch in that opinion. Um, or even on issues um, around employment discrimination. You see that there is a disturbing pattern from Gorsuch. Um, and then that's not to even look at the $17 million effort to get him on the bench. Right. And that brings up the really important nexus with the campaign finance system, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the majority leader in the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell, is the anti-campaign finance reform guy. He's a campaign finance reform nihilist. Right. right? Every, you know, every time he supports more deregulation, he'll say, okay, well, we're going to deregulate that as long as there's disclosure. And then when they bring up disclosure bills, it's like, nah, no disclosure. <laughs> and so, you know, part of it is obviously the, amount, the tremendous amount of money that was spent to, A, keep Mary Garland off, the, off the court. That's right. And then to support Neil Gorsuch's nomination. But I think there's also another sort of interesting angle to it, which is that the pressure that moderate Republicans are under mm-hmm. to confirm this guy. That's right. You can't Great ignore point. them thinking about their next election and wondering whether or not the millions of dollars in dark money that Republicans now rely on for re-election, whether it's going to be there if they vote no or if they obstru- if they keep Gorsuch off the court. That's right. We've created this atmosphere of fear. Joshua. 
Oh, you know, I think the, the question of, of what role the Supreme Court plays in all of this really does come to the forefront. And, and the question of the ways in which the Supreme Court's rulings can tend to advantage corporate interests against the little guy do really leap forth with a guy like Judge Gorsuch, who, you know, favors a view uh, of presidential power that would in many areas just really free Trump to cause a great deal of havoc. And his attitude, which is that most of the modern administrative state is unconstitutional and needs to be dramatically cut back on, is just an open invitation to judicial warfare on progressive regulations that keep so many people safe, even against corporations and other private power. And so I think there is a lot to your concern that this nomination really brings that question to the front. All right. So, Josh, we are T-minus two days away from potentially the end of the Senate as we know it. Um, What should our listeners be looking um, at and paying attention to over the next 48 hours? Yeah, I think this is is all about Senate Republicans and what they want to do. Are they going to choose um, their principles and preserving the Senate and its minority rights um, as the, you know, as it was designed, um, or are they going to sort of fall in line with the dark money and the interest groups that are trying to get Gorsuch confirmed at all costs? And I think Joshua made a great point about um, about the sort of constitutional issues and the separation of power stuff. Donald Trump is a walking, talking constitutional crisis about to happen, <laughs> right? You know, he's got the, right. the unconstitutional Muslim ban. You know, his his campaign folks are under FBI investigation. Conflicts of interest, and he, right. Yeah, conflicts yeah. of interest. And he even throws, you know, he even has these ridiculous throwaway comments about how we need to uh, tighten libel laws so we right. can go after reporters. <laughs> right. And nobody takes it seriously because they right. think he's just full of it. Right. But there is no more important time for a strong judicial check, and that's just we're just not going to get that from Neil Gorsuch. Joshua, last 30 seconds. You got it. What are we paying attention to over the next 48 hours? You know, I think Josh nailed it. The, the end of the day is that we live in an extraordinary time with a president whose Twitter account is a portable doomsday machine. And <laughs> if we are going to survive this, we need courts with the courage of their convictions willing to defend the rule of law. And there is an open question about whether Judge Gorsuch will defend parts of the Constitution Uh, that are essential to so many people. Joshua Matz, publisher of the Take Care blog, and Josh Orton, longtime Democratic Senate aide working on Gorsuch. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me on The Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit about Equal Pay Day. Yes, that's right. This is the day that women have to work to the end of the year to get paid what men earned the year before. We'll be right back after these messages. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE.
and welcome back, welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you, and many thanks to uh, to the two Joshes on the last segment talking all things Supreme Court. I'm back um, talking about Equal Pay Day. Um, today, for our listeners who aren't familiar, is Equal Pay Day. This is the day that symbolizes the wage discrepancy between men and women in the workforce. Today marks how far in 2017 women must work to earn what men earned in 2016. And to put it simply, women have to work longer for the same pay as men. And what's even more alarming is the statistics comparing the wage gap between men and African-American women is even more alarming. The National Women's Law Center reported that African-American women had to work 19 months to make as much as a white man did the previous year. What? That's right. And to put it differently, on average, black women earn about 60% less of what white men earn. So joining me in studio to talk about this and many of the other issues facing women in general, but also specifically looking at some of the challenges for black women and girls in this country, I have an all-star panel joining me, none other than uh, Joy Cheney. She's the campaign manager for Equal Pay Today, a project of the Tide Center. You can find her on Twitter at Joy, J-O-I-T-W-E-E-T-S. Joy, welcome back to the show. Also joining Dr. Jamila Taylor. She's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. You can find her on Twitter at Dr. D-R-T-A-Y-L-O-R-09. Dr. Taylor, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. And last but definitely not least is none other than Angela Hanks. She's the Associate Director for Workforce Development Policy and Economic Policy here at the Center for American Progress. You can find her on Twitter at Angela, A-N-G-E-L-A Hanks. Angela, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, Angela, I'm going to start with you because you are in the space around economic policy. You live and breathe these numbers. Um, The biggest thing that I hear about Equal Pay Day is, well, it's self-inflicted, right? (laughs) If If you don't ask for the raise, then you don't make the same amount. What do you say to that? Ugh. That is wrong in so many ways. <laughs> uh, so, to, so to begin, there's actually research that shows that when women ask, they actually get penalized for asking hmm. uh, for for higher wages. So uh, let's start there. That's certainly not a question of asking because you can even um, hurt yourself by by trying to to have what should be a, a, a rational conversation with your boss about your pay. Um, but there are a variety of reasons. Um, you know, if you control for the types of jobs women do, if you control for education levels, no matter what you control for, ultimately women are still paid less. Women with a bachelor's degree make less than men with a bachelor's degree. Women with a master's degree make less than a man with a bachelor's degree. Uh, women even um, in care work, for example, um, in the healthcare field where um, it's often cited that there are more women in the lower paying jobs. So that's why um, there is a wage gap there. Um, again, men in those same occupations end up getting paid more. Um, and then there's the occupational segregation where women are 
often relegated to uh, lower income jobs, which is why you see more women, for instance, in the care workforce, in the early childhood education space, wage uh, jobs that generally pay close to or at the minimum wage. So, Joy, you spend much of your time, um, also a former Senate staffer, but you spend most most of your time really talking about equal pay throughout the year. Um, why has this day become so important kind of in the lexicon of social justice and equality feminism work? Well, because it's just so long been easily measurable. Everyone can wrap their minds around the injustice of having to work longer to make the same amount as someone else. Uh, We all get that. It's easy. Uh, It went viral before we even knew what that was. So we've been celebrating equal pay or rather observing it for many years. I think that recently, I think the Obama administration had a great deal to do with highlighting the importance of closing the gender wage gap. And women's organizations like mine and and, uh, progressive organizations like Center for American Progress also did a, a, a good job of highlighting this as an issue. But at the end of the day, women made this an issue at at least in the way they were polled at the ballot box. They made it an issue in some of the state initiatives that they engaged in at the state level. So it's easy to understand. It's a real problem, and um, progressives encouraged us to get together on it and, and made it an issue. So, Dr. Taylor, um, and I see we have a caller. We'll, we'll take the caller in one moment. But, Dr. Taylor, the, the piece that I think is often missing from the conversation about equal pay is how it affects other outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. So when, when you don't have as many resources, uh, we know that that also means that you're probably having less, a- less access to um, healthy foods and then... And with your background in public health, that means kind of lower life expectancy or or, or other uh, collateral issues mm-hmm. that I think doesn't often enter into that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think the issue around equal pay, you know, as you said, Michelle, does impact other aspects of women's lives, um, not only in terms of their economic security and the ability to, you know, support their families, Um, but also issues like workplace flexibility, um, particularly for women who, you know, are moms and helping to support their children is also a key aspect of this. Um, I think another key piece to lift up is the fact that when we think about, you know, the wage gap in terms of women of color, um, we know that black for black women, they earn 63 cents on the dollar to white men, um, and Latinas earn 54 cents. So the gap is even wider um, we think about these issues for women of color, and we also know that there are other, I think, indicators around not only economics, but health as well, um, that have a disproportionate effect effect on, on women of color. And so we really do need to, I think, hone in on um, women of color and what they need in terms of the issue um, a little bit better than we have already done. And we've been paying attention. Yeah. So, uh, Linwood from Charlottesville, Virginia, you're on with uh, us on the Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. You know, I've been sitting here hearing this, and as an African-American, I'm, I'm applauded because I'm so sick and damn tired of hearing our people crying to the white establishment to fix this problem when these people can't even fix their own problem. These people are murderers, they're rapists, and they're and why do we want to be a part of that system? Why- so, Linwood, I'm, I'm actually going to cut you off, um, 
and say, I appreciate your First Amendment rights, <laughs> but today we're going to focus on equal pay, and we're also mm-hmm. going to add some facts and some context, because the equal pay gap and the wage gap discrepancy is not fiction. Mm-hmm. It's not about appealing to any one individual. Yeah. It's about a recognition of systemic differences on right. how women are paid in society and how that has a cost for all families. So, Angela, I mean, I, I think the the piece here that is 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 so important is that there is there are things that you can do to fix the wage gap, right? And and I love for us to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think uh, you make a really important point that um, we all should remember during this conversation. Really, the the pay gap is not about individuals; it's about systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way to solve that isn't to tell one individual that they should be a better negotiator or that they should really go get a better job or go back to school or what have you. Those things can help, but ultimately what we're dealing with is addressing systemic discrimination in the labor market, and that requires um, some thinking on policy, not on individuals' uh, uh, um, personal behavior. Uh, so so there are things that, that we can do. So. Um, on equal pay uh, for women, just in general, um, you know, things like access to uh, childcare, access to paid leave, uh, those things disproportionately affect women, disproportionately affect women of color. Um, also, um, being better about ad- using um, the laws we have in place to address right. and enforce uh, anti-discrimination laws. Um, in my space, um, where uh, I work on workforce development issues, um, there are also um, elements of the law that establish uh, affirmative action provisions that have not been well enforced over the years. Um, so there are things that we can do to address the systemic causes of, um, of the pay gap um, for all women, particularly of people of women of color. And, and really, if you want to get that at this for all women, you start with the most disadvantaged who are uh, women of color. But that's, that's where we need to begin. So Joy, what has Michelle, the, oh. Yeah, go ahead, Joy. I was just gonna jump in and add all of that's right. We also know that today Congress introduced the Paycheck Fairness Act, most of the Democrats in Congress, incidentally. And that bill would strengthen the Equal Pay Act, which many of our um, pay discrimination cases come under, would make it easier for enforcement agencies to address the pay gap, would ban the use of prior salary during the interview and the hiring process. And I think we all in our individual lives know how that plays out. So you're already uh, being paid unequally. And then as you go to your next job, that salary continues. And so it perpetuates the gap and it makes it almost impossible to get out of it. And we know that is a major issue, not just for women, but also for men of color and others who experience the pay gap. That's right. It also, the Paycheck Fairness Act also addresses uh, prohibitions on retaliation for discussing pay and closing loopholes that some employers use to unfairly justify the gender wage gap. So I don't want to get off the call without making sure everyone knows that while all of those workforce-related things are important, it's also important that we strengthen the laws that enable us to give an employer pause. I think that's so right. Before they that's so right. Violate someone's right. That's so right. And you know what? That should be a bipartisan bill because right. everybody can get behind that. Jamila, absolutely. I mean, I think I just wanted to add the fact that um, you know we're talking about 
a in a wage a wage gap in in the same positions, you know that men hold. Um, I think that's something to lift up, you know, as the previous caller may have said, you know, or may have had thoughts about, you know, we're us making comparisons in terms of the types of jobs women have versus men. Um, you know, the analysis around the wage gap issue is around, you know, the same positions held by men and women. So I do want to lift that up and make sure that our callers are aware of that, because that's an important point to put out there. Yeah, without question. I think the, <laughs> the, other, the other piece here is that, you know, learning about something that makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's not true. Right. Right. And, and it's on all of us. Once we find out this information for us to figure out what is our role in either perpetuating in this case, wage discrepancy. And if it, if it's not our role, what can we do to work and fix it? And I think we're so afraid in this alternate facts reality um, of hearing the truth. But that's what you're going to get when you listen to the Leslie Marshall show. Michelle Jawando, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about um, one of the areas that I wanted to kind of wrap into this is as we're talking about agency and, and having um, uh, equal pay is connected to the way that people value certain lives in this country versus others. Um, and here in D.C., many of you know we, we do the show out of D.C., um, we've had an issue around missing black girls in Washington, D.C., and some say that there isn't a rise, but in fact it's just greater publication. But no matter what, these are issues that affect our community. So, Angela, we, we only have a few minutes left, but just as we as we're thinking about closing, how can we think about better agency for um, for black women as they're dealing with these issues? How how do we put these issues on the radar so people understand what what people are dealing with? Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that struck me about the conversation around the missing black girls is, you know, the city was kind of stressed that this wasn't an uptick, but but ultimately what it exposed was an empathy gap. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we talk about the disparities um, for um, uh, people of color generally, but for black girls even, I mean, it begins in preschool. Mm -hmm. Black girls are six times more likely to be suspended from preschool um, than their white counterparts. Um, they're more likely to be incarcerated than their white counterparts. Um, and really this all stems from kind of the fact that they're not valued in our society. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think kind of going forward, um, you know, I know that the mayor has proposed um, some um, some initiatives that were already um, on deck before um, this came to light, um, and I hope that they'll do more, and I hope that um, across the country other municipalities look at what we're doing. But ultimately it's about, you know, you have to start with caring what happens to these girls and, and valuing their lives as much as you value a white child's life. Mm -hmm. Joy, uh, 30 seconds. Joy? Oh, a wonderful. Well, <laughs> one of the things I want to add at the very risk of blaming the victim, I do think it's important. This is a great example of how it is so important for us to engage on these issues and us to speak up for black girls. And we need all of our organizations, uh, whether they are progressive organizations, whether they are civil rights organizations, wherever they fall, to speak out 
on these issues and to say that when we say Black Lives Matter, we don't just mean in policing. We mean in what's happening in schools. We mean in where our education dollars are going and where our health care dollars, all of our policy decisions, even in terms of who gets publicized as missing on the news or what countries we will report on terrorist activity from all of that is about saying black lives and people of color's lives matter. The others, which certainly encompasses me and, and perhaps others on this call, we matter. That's right. And that That's only right. starts when we demand it. So I'd like to just add that piece. And I think because people in D.C., I'm a D.C. resident, because we demanded it in this particular case, we're seeing it reverberate across the country and people are learning about it. But it's not because the news media picked up on it. It's because we picked up on we it. Demanded we, it. Went to we demanded it. We demanded it. I love that. And unfortunately, we are at the end. I hate how fast this goes. But Dr. Taylor, give me 10 seconds. Give me a tweet. Give me a 10 seconds. I'll just say that, you know, it does not matter whether or not, you know, missing girls in D.C., missing black girls are missing or whether or not they ran away. We they still deserve for us to go looking for them. And so I think that's a non-issue. We need to take this seriously, make sure that they have the support they need. Um, and, it, and we also need to pressure the media to make sure that they cover these, these cases. Well, you can find that here. Joy Cheney, Dr. Jamila Taylor, and Angela Hanks, thank you all for joining me. When we come back, we'll have Talk Media News. This is Michelle Jawado on The Leslie Marshall Show. show. I'm here with Patrick Gavin, reporter for Talk Media News. Patrick, always great to have you. What am I hearing about the latest on the GOP health repeal and replace bill? It's not dead? Well, it depends on who you ask. There's a couple of ways of looking at this. That's right, that President Trump and Paul Ryan and also members of the House Freedom Caucus uh, in the wake of their somewhat embarrassing defeat to repeal and replace Obamacare are trying to put together another bill, one that has a better chance of uh, passing uh, passing both houses. But the problem is, is two things. Number one, obviously you're hearing a lot about Republicans' efforts to keep at this. And that's because, you know, they spent the past six or seven years railing against Obamacare. You know, I think politically speaking, which is, you know, for better or for worse, just as important as the policy sometimes, politically speaking, they can't say to their constituents, hey, we spent 12 days trying to rush through a bill it didn't work and now we're now we're going to give up i mean this is one of the top reasons that their constituents sent them here so part of it is to save face especially as we head into the april town hall meetings but part of it is also i think to try to in probably much smaller ways than they originally hoped chip away at obamacare this later this latest uh idea the the, the sort of the notion is that this latest proposal would allow states sort of pass responsibility down to the state to allow them to sort of pick and choose which regulations from Obamacare they would want to use or not. And the two that are kind of getting the most attention is the essential health benefit, that is that insurance insurance companies have to cover under Obamacare, uh, sort of a standard minimum package of benefits. That's one thing that they may allow states to opt out of. And the second would allow insurance companies to also um, – to also do away with the rule that requires them to charge the same price for everyone of the same age, which essentially 
means that insurance companies can't discriminate uh, based on uh, previous conditions. So, well, yep. Uh, well, Patrick, we will all be watching the latest on the GOP health care bill. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to have you. Have a great week. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it. Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.